And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 116. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donald Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you, as always, for your support, for your encouragement, for everything that you do to keep me moving forward with this podcast. I truly appreciate it, and I am grateful for all of those who listen to the podcast, share it, promote it on social media, and buy me cups of coffee. I have a listener question today, which I'm grateful for because sometimes I get tired of wondering if anybody is interested in the books I'm reading or whether you're engaging with the books I'm reading. And so to receive questions by way of Anchor FM, by way of the Warrior Priest podcast at uh, WordPress, or by way of uh, Instagram, I appreciate the questions because they challenge me to think outside of what I'm comfortable thinking about sometimes. And today then is no different. The listener in question asked the question, happiness, is it possible in the day in which we live, in the generation in which we find ourselves, is it possible right now in 2022, June 22nd, 2022, is it possible to be happy when everything seems so dire? At least in the United States, our culture is in free fall. It seems as if we are reaching high speed, critical fall rate at this point, that there is no choice. The chute is not going to deploy. And even if it does, it's high speed dirt for all of us in this society. Depravity, moral degeneracy, all that is vice leaning, all that is sinful, all that is vile and perverse and evil seems to be parading itself in public before our eyes, contemptuous of us, wrapped up in its own hubris, its own blind, willful ignorance about reality. And for those of us who have been burdened with discernment, the question comes, how can I be happy when inflation is only going to get worse. Food shortages are only going to increase. Gas prices are going to continue to go up. Society is in free fall. It doesn't seem like anything can stop us from going over the edge. And I would say we're already over the edge and we're already in free fall. It's just that you're looking back up at the cliff's edge and I'm looking down at the ground as it fast approaches. And we are going to break Our society, our culture in America is going to shatter. Civilization is going to disintegrate and implode. And there's nothing we can do to stop that. I doubt the petrodollar will be the prevailing currency in the world for much longer. It's already teetering. I doubt the three-car garage and the low interest mortgage rate is going to be anything more in the next few years than nostalgia for people. Our privilege, our luxury that we enjoy in the United States to subscribe to various streaming services, whether it be music, television, whatever it might be, those will become a thing of the past very soon. I think we will see non-kinetic warfare between people, between families, within communities, 
I think we'll see it even within our own military. I think our government is going to continue to go down the path that it has chosen for itself, which is one of absolute degeneracy and moral compromise. And I think that the politicians who serve at the state and federal level are soul empty. So how can I possibly be happy? As a pastor, every day now, every day something's coming at me from a different direction. People's lives are falling apart. Their marriages are imploding. Children are alienated from their parents. People can't make their mortgage payments already. They can't afford the gas to drive back and forth to work and still pay their bills. My congregation is full every Sunday, and yet other churches are closing. Around me, the wreckage of the past two and a half years has reached ahead. The top of the volcano is blowing off. And yet I feel like a man standing on a hill watching artillery fall all around him. And I yell and I cry and I beg. I beg people to join me on top of the hill where it's safe. But they just keep running back and forth screaming, someone save us, someone help us. When is this going to end? When can we go back to normal? When will we stop feeling like we're being attacked? When can we stop worrying and being anxious about tomorrow or even today? And I keep saying, you just need to walk up the hill and join me. But they treat me like Sisyphus, like I'm lying, like I didn't really push the, the rock up the hill. And there's even people that have gotten mad at me for aping Jocko's mantra, good. How's things? Good. How's your family? Good. How's your life? Good. How's things at the gym? Good. How's things at church? Good. How can you say that? I have a friend, my brother by another mother, asked me several months ago, would I have another child considering everything that's happening right now and everything that's going to happen? And my gut initial, without thinking response was, no, absolutely not. And then I immediately repented of saying that because that was my emotional response to his question. But in faith, my answer is, of course, I'd have 10 more. Because one, I love my children unconditionally. And one or two or three or 10 more children would only increase and swell my heart. My love would only increase for them. And in the end, because I trust that there is a creator, because I trust that my creator is also my redeemer and my savior, his words give me comfort. And I trust that no matter what may come, as the apostle says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what the apostle Paul means is that to live is Christ. Well, what was Christ's life like? He was itinerant. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was cursed. He was thrown out of the synagogues for not only teaching heresy, but claiming to speak with authority that only God possesses. And in the end, they murdered him. And they crucified him alongside two criminals. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says to live as Christ. It doesn't mean that you float around on a cloud, you walk on water, that you are untouched by the dirt and the grime of this world. Instead, it means the exact opposite. It means that your throne 
It's a pile of garbage. Your empire is an empire of dirt, to quote Trent Reznor. Your legacy is that you were here and you struggled and you suffered and you fought and you experienced hurt and harm. And for many, life is an accident. It is a meaningless, valueless accident. And the only reason to get up in the morning is to satisfy the yes or no of your own personal tastes. They believe in nothing. They value nothing. And therefore, their life is nothing. So I come back to the question, how? How can one be happy when as bad and as dark as it seems right now, I know it's going to get darker. It's going to become more dire. The answer, number one, and first and foremost for myself, is obviously that I have faith and that I trust that no matter what may come, to live as Christ, to suffer, to be afflicted, to be cursed and mocked and ridiculed for my faith is par for the course because to live is Christ. And as they treated him, they will treat me because I'm with him. But to die then is gain, meaning if you kill me, you release me from sin and death and hell. You release me from struggle and affliction, from hurt and harm and pain, from sickness and disease. You release me from all of that. And as Jesus says to the one criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I believe that there will be a last day. I believe that we are living in the last days. We have been living in the last days, according to the Christian Bible, since Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead. The last day is not out there in the future somewhere. It's back there in the past 2,000 years. So every day for me is to live in the last day. Every day for me, then, is to trust in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, whether it be today, tomorrow, or 100 years or a million years from now. And therefore, my happiness is not based on my emotional state, my emotional well-being. It's not based on false hope or hopium. It's not based on mustering up the courage and the will to force myself to be happy, to see the best in everything. I think that is self-blindness. But instead, because I have faith, I am now free to face the darkness, to be a light in the darkness. Because that is what my God made me into when he pulled me off the trash heap, when he rescued me, sobered me up, created faith in me, set me on this path, this way of his cross. And yet within that freedom then, I can look at my family, I can look at my church, I can look at my gym, my coaches, my teammates, I can look at all of it as gift. And that no matter what the world, in the abstract sense, no matter what others that are out of my control, who claim power and authority over me, no matter what they may do to me, I know, I believe that the ultimate power and authority does not lie in their hands because they are temporary also. They are human. They have to eat, they have to sleep, they have to go to the bathroom, they have to die. And even if I die penniless and they die with billions of dollars, 
we both get buried in the same six by six hole in the ground. In the end, we are all equal, no matter how unequal we are in this life. And so I don't worry about what's out of my control. Is it a conscious effort? Yes, it is. Because it's out of my control and I want to be in control. I want to control what happens to my children and my family and my church. I want to control what happens to me personally. I want to be that defense. I want to be the protector that they need me to be. That ultimately what I'm protecting them from is death itself. But that is out of my control. God is out of my control. I am not God. I am not a demigod. I'm not like a God. I am a selfish, finite, mortal man. And that's all I am, a creature. And when I get wrapped up worrying about what I have no control over, which brings us to the Stoics and especially Epictetus, I am attempting to be God in God's place. I am attempting to be a God and to control good and evil, right and wrong, life and death. But at bottom, I have no control over any of those things. I am an expert on fooling myself. I am an expert on lying to myself and deceiving myself. And I can make it through 80 to 90% of my day thinking that I have some control over life and death, right and wrong, good and evil. And to a certain extent, a very limited, a very, 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 very finite, like the sliver of a sense, I do. I choose not to put a gun in my mouth and eat a bullet today. Right now, talking to you, I choose to not kill myself, to annihilate myself. So I have choice. I have control over that. But I have no control over my heart or my kidney or my lungs or my mind. I could be sitting on an aneurysm right now and not know it. I could die as I'm talking to you right now and not even know what happened. Blood vessel pops in my head, boom, done, brain dead. So why not worry about that 24-7? Why not do everything I can? Why not get an MRI once a week to guarantee that I don't have cancerous polyps in my colon? Why don't I do more to insulate and protect my family? Why don't I work tirelessly to insulate my church from hurt and harm? Because I can't. So that my life, my own personal choices, are to force myself to accept objective reality. That when it comes to control, I really don't have any. When it comes to what I know and what I don't know, I don't even know what I don't know. That's how limited I am in my vision, in my thoughts, in my understanding and knowledge of the world and how it works. I don't understand my wife's mind. I don't understand what's in my children's hearts. I don't understand the faith of the people or the lack of faith of the people in my congregation. I don't understand the intent or the motive of most of my teammates because they don't tell me. And they're their own individual person. They're not creatures that I created in a laboratory. They're not slaves that I control and order around. Their will is outside of my control. Talking to you right now. How you hear this is not how I imagine you're hearing this. 
what you're thinking is not what I imagine you're thinking hearing my words. Because once my words leave my mouth and travel out your speaker, your mind will take these words and shape them into something. Often, what I never intended or never imagined was possible. That's why it's always uncomfortable when people criticize you. You think to yourself, what did I say or do that would bring this upon me? And the answer is you spoke and you did something. And other people either heard or saw that, made up their own minds about what you said or did, and then came back at you with a criticism. Did you have any control over that? Often, no, you're just talking, you're just posting on social media, you're just preaching, whatever it might be. You have no control over how people react to that. And yet we act hurt, we are hurt when people criticize us. Because, at least for myself, I always have the best of intent. I always want to believe, and I do believe, that my motives are pure, unless I know consciously they're not. But this side of faith, on the other side of the house, what is there as far as happiness? This fleeting emotion that is extremely subjective and relative to the moment. So for those of you who are not Christians, for those of you who are not religious, you can simply kind of bifurcate what I just said. That's what Donovan believes, and I respect his beliefs, but that's not what I believe. So Donovan, if I'm not a Christian, if I'm not a religious person, if I don't believe in God, what about me? How can I be happy? And the answer is, you still can be. Because happiness doesn't hinge on whether you believe in Jesus or God or anything. Happiness hinges on the life that you live. But within that, as I noted, accepting that for the most part, you have no control over the actions, the thoughts, the words of other people, or even yourself to a large extent. And the Stoics are who help me not only understand, but also accept. There's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't understand about myself, about you, about the world. So just let it go. Why do you need to be God? Why do you need to fashion yourself a God? Because, of course, if you fashion yourself as a God, not only do you not have control over other people, but the sin of the world is now on your shoulders. The selfishness, the depravity, the moral turpitude, the intemperance of the world, the lack of charity and forgiveness, that's on your shoulders now, and you have to carry that. Because you can't accept that the things that those people are doing and saying are out of your control. And so the Stoics, first and foremost, believed in living a virtuous life. Why? Because a virtuous life brings happiness and fulfillment. It makes you a complete person. And by virtue, they simply mean living a life that is just and right and good and charitable. I think that's why it's very popular nowadays to follow the Stoic path for so many people. The people have rediscovered Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Lucidius Rufus and Seneca and others because their philosophy is not only useful, I think, but useful in the way of immediate practical application. You can read Marcus Aurelius' meditations and immediately apply what he says to your life. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, it's very practical because that's their definition of philosophy, that the purpose of philosophy is not to debate ideas, but to live a particular way. 
And so you pursue virtue, you pursue a good character. And that's what allows you to arrive at happiness and fulfillment, completeness. Virtue and happiness are handmaidens. They go hand in hand. If you live a virtuous life, then you're living a good life. And if you're living a good life, then no matter what happens, you can be happy knowing that you are a person of good character. You are a virtuous person. And therefore, your happiness, your pursuit of virtue, your fulfillment, your completeness, doesn't hinge on other people, what they do or say or think. It is entirely based on your choices. So Seneca, in his letters from a Stoic, writes, a good character is the only guarantee of everlasting carefree happiness. Well, what is a good character? It's, your, it's who you are as a person, not your personality, but how you behave as a person, how you conduct yourself, how you speak. That's your character. It's a reflection of your personality, but it's not your personality. The personality is who you are at the most fundamental level. It's what defines you as a person individuated from all other people. What makes you you? Your personality. But a person of good character especially if you follow, like this, follow the Stoic teachings, well, you can find yourself in a group of a million people of the same character. So even though all those people have a different personality that makes them them and you you, you could all develop the same or similar characters based on your adherence and observation of the same philosophy and philosophers. So if you want a good life, you must pursue the virtuous life, a good life, just, righteous, temperate, wise, kind, charitable. It's the same thing that the samurai strove for. It's why it's in the Hagakure and in Bushido. It's the same thing that medieval knights strove for. It's in the Code of Chivalry. It's what the Stoics strove for, which is why it's throughout their teachings. Over and over again, we see this repeated by different groups of people in different places in the world. Therefore, in my opinion, that's what proves this to be valid is that it's not a stoic principle exclusively. It's not a samurai principle. It's not a knightly principle. It's a human thing that there is objectively measurable virtues and vices. And you can choose whether to engage and participate in what is virtuous or what is a vice, which we get the word vicious from, of course. So you're either virtuous or vicious. That's the word I was looking for earlier. Vicious. So a good character then is the only guarantee of an everlasting carefree happiness. You're happy because you're in the pursuit of, you're working at being a good person. And so you don't have time to worry and get nervous about what vicious people are doing. That guy over there is immoral. Well, that's his problem. And until he comes within arm's reach, he's not my problem. Now, if he makes me his problem, that's a different kind of conversation then about the virtue of self-defense, the virtue of protecting your neighbor from vicious people, from criminal people, from evil people. But to be a complete person is the only way to be happy. Well, how do I become a complete person? Well, that's simple. Read the Stoics, pursue justice, righteousness, temperance, wisdom, kindness, charity, and so on. Read Bushido, read the Hagakure, read 
Aurelius's meditations, read Epictetus's discourses, read Seneca's letters from a Stoic, and apply them to your life. Discipline yourself. And so when you act virtuously, when you strive towards these ideals, then you can say, the person I am today is the best version of the, of the man that I can be today. And when I wake up tomorrow, God willing, I will strive to put the person that I am today to death. Because tomorrow I'm a different person, and I am a better person than the person I am today, so long as I pursue virtue and the principles, the ideals of a virtuous life. But notice, whether I talk about faith, I'm talking about how my attention is directed toward the other, the object of my faith, Jesus, who is this Christ. Likewise, then, when I pursue a stoic life, a virtuous life, a disciplined life, my attention is directed toward the man in the mirror, the object of my pursuit. So whether I'm looking at God or looking at myself, really what I'm saying is, how do I love God more, and how do I love myself more? Well, I do it by not focusing on other people and what they are or are not doing to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. I can't help you if you hate yourself. I cannot help you if you are hopeless. I cannot help you if you are on a path of moral degradation. I can walk with you, but then there's always the temptation that I fall into sin and vice with you. So you have to be very careful about how far you want to go with someone. You have to test the spirits. You have to practice discernment. Can I walk with this person all the way, part of the way? Am I strong enough? Do I have flaws and vulnerabilities and weaknesses that I need to attend to before I walk with this person? I want to show up for my brother who's an alcoholic or a drug addict, but am I strong enough to walk with him in his addiction without succumbing to and being tempted to become an addict myself? Can I sit with a man who's emptying a fifth of whiskey and not share that bottle with him and get drunk myself and therefore actually facilitate and contribute to his addiction continuing? Or do I need to take a step back, establish my sobriety, make sure that I'm strong before I enter into that arena and attempt to walk with him in his addiction, hopefully towards sobriety? We have to focus on the object of our pursuit rather than those who are not what we are pursuing. So first and foremost, then, here's some stoic principles. Let's do five, because, hey, top five, high fidelity. Stop worrying about what you can't control. Number one, like I've been talking about, that's what Epictetus says in his discourses. There is only one way to happiness, and that is to cease, to stop worrying about things which are beyond the power of our will. And by will, he means choice. I have no choice. I have no control over the activities of Bill Gates, George Soros, Klaus Schwab. I am not involved in conversations at the Senate, Congressional, or Oval Office level. I don't know what the three-letter agencies are doing, and when I do find out, there's nothing I can do about it. When the news lies to me, day after day after day, I have no control over that. What do I have control over? Shutting off the TV canceling my subscription if I disagree with the message they're pushing. I can not vote for the people that I blame for the current state of our society. 
I can do all of that. Those are my choices. But first and foremost, my choice is to be a better man for my wife, for my kids, for my community, to build connections, to build a new culture and community locally where I'm at. So that if the world, when the world goes to hell in a handbasket, I'm prepared. And I've built up a network. I've built up a community. I've built up a group of people. And we will get through this together. And we, then we don't need the federal government to bail us out. We don't even need state or local governments to come alongside and quote unquote help us. Because they're the problem. So why would I want the people that created my problems to help me solve my problems? That's the Hegelian dialectic in a nutshell. They created the crisis. They offer me a solution to the crisis, which is really just a way for me to get deeper into debt, deeper into chattel slavery, deeper into being controlled by the very people that I consider to be evil and soul empty and godless. But of course, that's the definition of insanity. That's why our society is insane. Because we keep going back to the same well, expecting it to not be poisoned. And then we act shocked when we start throwing up and vomiting the poison. There's only one way to happiness, according to Epictetus. Stop worrying about what you don't have the power to control. Sitting on my iPad, for example, reading the emails and texts that I get from people all over the world, giving me information, giving me intelligence reports, sharing with me the inside scoop at different government levels, military levels, within the intelligence community, wherever it may be. That doesn't make me happy. Working in my garden for three hours makes me happy. When I harvest the vegetables and the fruit in my garden and I see it on the table and I see my children laughing and eating and there's strawberry juice dripping down their chin, that makes me happy. Posting memes about how 93% of all the drugs on the market today weren't even tested according to the scientific method, and the FDA approved them without any second or third or fourth trial. That doesn't make me happy. It upsets me. It aggravates me. It makes me righteous in my indignation. But it definitely doesn't make me happy to know this this stuff. It doesn't make me happy that I'm shadow banned on Instagram for sharing information that's true that even after the fact was admitted to be true by the people that told me it was a lie. That doesn't make me happy. So then why am I on social media? I don't have a good answer other than that I get to socially network with other people that do make me happy, that do share with me, that do encourage with me, that do motivate me like you who are listening to this. But at a certain point, I have to also recognize and accept the people that I have built up a, a, a relationship with around the world that give me information that help me stay up to date and understand why things are happening the way they are. They're not there to make me happy. They're there to keep me informed so that I can prepare for what's coming. And I have to draw a division between the information that helps me understand how much time I have left before there's no food left on the shelves, before the banks no longer honor their contracts, whether it be mortgages, loans, whatever it might be, how long until the store shelves are empty and rationing begins, widespread, broadly speaking. I need to know that so I can prepare. But it doesn't make me happy. 
What makes me happy is the object of my happiness. My faith in my Savior and the people that are immediately in front of me. My family, for example. They're real. They're tangible. I can put my hands around them. I can get a hold of them. They're graspable. And when I see their faces, when I receive the gifts from them, there's happiness there. And so I focus on the gifts. I focus on gratitude. I focus on sobriety. But I draw that division. I draw that line between the, the things that I need to know so that I can prepare for what's coming, but also then the faith to trust that no matter what comes, the Lord will take care of me. Because in the end, I can't stop living because of my faith, but I also can't put all my faith in my preparations. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And so I have to remind myself, like the Stoics, every day that in this life there are things that I have absolutely no control over within my own house, within my own body. And maybe I have partial control. Maybe I have a sliver of control. And maybe I do have complete control. But I have to exercise discernment and apply discernment to each situation, each circumstance, each event as it occurs to determine, is this under my control? Is it partially under my control? Is there a sliver of control? Is there no control? Because that's the only way that I know to have peace in my life is to accept that for the most part, I have no control over anything and that I got to practice letting go and then focus on what I can control and what I do control. What don't we control? Well, you don't control the world around you. You don't control external events. You don't control other people. You don't control nature. You don't control genetics. You don't control the past or the future. And so what happens when you try to control those things? Your life becomes pointless and meaningless, frustrated and anxious, depressing and sad, and extremely difficult for you and everyone around you. Because you're like a storm cloud. You're a doomsayer. That's why this is the intersection of conflict and belief and not just the lane or the causeway of one or the other. In the midst of conflict, God is present for you as your God. Otherwise, the conflict will overwhelm you and it will crush you. The way it will become too much for you. And you will go around looking for false saviors, including yourself, including the person in the mirror. We have to suffer. That's what it means to be alive. We will experience pain because we're in our bodies and our bodies experience pain. And so as I was taught to pray in AA, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a perfect Stoic prayer. It's from the serenity prayer. I think it was written by H. Richard Niebuhr or Reinhold Niebuhr, but I think it's H. Richard Niebuhr. But anyways, serenity prayer, look it up. Most people know that line, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom no difference. Everybody knows that. But it actually is a very long prayer. So that's number one. Accept what you can't control. Stop worrying about what you can't control. And two, focus on what you can control. As Epictetus says in the Enchiridion, some things are within our power. There are some things that are within our power and there are other things that are not. What is within our power, Epictetus? Well, he says, opinions, our motivations, our desires, our aversions, 
that is whatever is our own doing. I have control over what I do and nothing else. The Stoics argue that the only two things that we can absolutely control are our thoughts and our actions. And even that, I would say, we have to train up, obviously. You have to train yourself to be thoughtful. You have to train yourself to control your thoughts. Because they're like wild monkeys. <laughs> Same thing with our actions. We need to train ourselves to act. To act in a specific way. For our good and the good of others. You have to train yourself up to do that because we're all inherently selfish people. We're all inherently self-directed. We're self-centered. We care about ourselves first and foremost and middle and last. So we have to actually train ourselves to be selfless. We have to force ourselves to act contrary to our natures and be selfless. Well, we have to accept that we can't control the world that's around us. We can't control how we respond to it through our judgments and our reactions. Wait, no, we can. We can control our judgments and our reactions. We just can't control what happens. So as Epictetus says, we can't control what happens around us, but we can, we can control how we react to it. There we go. I got mind tied there for a second. <laughs> things are inevitable. Life, the things that happen in our life are inevitable. We can't control what happens around us, but we can control our perception of events. We can control our response. So where then do I look for good and evil, Epictetus writes in Discourses? Where do I look for good and evil? Not in what is uncontrollable, what is outside of me, but within myself, to the choices that are my own. So the most important practice for the Stoic is to differentiate between what I have control over and what I don't, what is internal and what is external, on our judgments, on our voluntary actions, and on our choices. And so even though I can't control what happens around me, outside of me, I can control how I perceive it, how we choose to respond and react. See, I've talked about this before, and it's a very important stoic lesson I've learned. Observation is look at what's right in front of you, what you can observe with the naked eye. I have books in front of me, my laptop, this microphone. These are observable facts. I can grasp a hold of them. They're real. My perception is my opinion, my interpretation of what is observable. So I can look at the books and say, oh, these amazing, wonderful, beautiful books. Whereas you may look at the same books and say, they just look like normal books. I don't see anything amazing or remarkable or beautiful about them at all. That's your perception. But your observation is the same as mine. There's books on your desk. There's a microphone in front of your face. There's a laptop open to your right. Our perception is what, of course, colors our judgments. It's, I call it adjectival. That's what perception is. It's all adjectives. It's beautiful. It's ugly. It's up. It's down in the sense of being good or bad. It's the worst ever. It's the best ever. It's all adjectival. It's all descriptors to describe observable reality. Do I, do I enjoy and appreciate what I observe or do I not? Well, it's going to color my language then, isn't it? You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength, Marcus Aurelius writes in his meditations. You must understand the dichotomy between what you can and can't control if you want to live a happy life. 
The more you remind yourself of this, the less you'll suffer from fear and anxiety, and the easier it will become for you to invest your energy and your effort into becoming the person that you want to be for yourself and for others. As my uh, associate, my compatriot, Gio Martinez, Martinez says, be the person that you wanted to be when you were a kid. Don't be the person that other adults tell you you have to be. Be the person you wanted to be as a kid. Recover that childlike sense of seriousness when you're at play, to quote Nietzsche. But understand that what Gio is saying is, is the same thing that Nietzsche is saying in a sense, which is children are always present. They always are lost in the moment because they're very serious about what they're doing. Why? Because they don't know that you need to pay attention to what's going on around you. They haven't taught that yet. They haven't grown into that saddle, that yoke. But what if we were serious like a child at play? What if we threw all of our time, attention, and energy into those things that we just love, that completely capture us in the present moment? Well, that would be the stuff that we have control over. And it's the stuff that we don't have control over that yanks us out of that moment and that takes away our childlike sense of seriousness when it comes to playing. I play at being a pastor. I play at being a martial artist. I play at being a father and a husband. That doesn't mean that I'm playing like it's a game. It means that I am completely and absolutely focused and I'm having fun and loving and enjoying what I'm doing because I only do what I love. And then when I have to do something that I don't want to do, that I basically have to do, like a chore, I remind myself that I have to do this so that I can play. I have to set up the game. I have to read the rules. I have to build the tree fort. I have to do all of that. It's all part of playing the game. It's just that some parts of the game are more fun than others. Everybody wants to rush to the end and win the game. Nobody wants to go through the suffering and the pain of the game itself. But nobody lifts a trophy. Nobody gets a medal hung around their neck who hasn't suffered and struggled to get there. You learn the rules, you train, you build up your strength. And then God willing, one day you win. But in order to win, you have to fail so many times. That's how you become happy is through failure. But you fail up. You learn from your failures. You learn from the past so that you can live without regret. You learn that there is no future. There is only the present moment. And then you discipline yourself and you train in such a way that you remain constantly in the present. And when you're not in the present, you have to go to the past. You have to go to the future because others want you to go there. Or you just need to go there because people, hey, what are you doing tomorrow at 3 p.m.? I don't know. I don't worry about tomorrow. Well, I need you to worry about it because I need to know if we can meet at 3 o'clock tomorrow. I do it. Why? Because I'm free to do that and to do it without anxiety or worry. Am I always without anxiety and worry? Of course not. That's ridiculous. But in those moments when I experience that, I reach out. I get outside of my own head. I seek counsel and advice from my elders, from those who are wiser and more experienced than me. I ask their opinion. I ask for their counsel. I help them get me grounded in the present tense, even if it means talking about the stuff from the past or the future that makes me anxious. Because at the very least, if we're talking in the present tense and I can observe you being right there in front of me and focus on you and focus on the conversation that is in the present tense, 
Now I'm not running ahead to the future anymore. And so as Marcus Aurelius writes in his meditations, you could leave the life right now. So let that determine what you do and say and think. That's number three. Think about death all the time. I know, right? It sounds macabre. Sounds like it's kind of a downer, right? The Stoics always thought about death every day, a lot. But I've used the example before. It's when I went to the AA and I was told that unless I make sobriety my constant and total focus 100% of the time, all the time, I could never be sober or stay sober. And I thought, well, if all I ever do and think about is sobriety, how can I do or think about anything else? Seems weird. And as I matured in the program and got some time under my belt being sober and working the steps, the 12 steps of AA, I understood what that meant. My entire life was founded on sobriety. I built my new life on sobriety. Just like when you clean out all your cupboards, clean out your refrigerator and your freezer and throw out all the junk food in your house and replace it with healthy food. You don't think about dieting because your entire diet is now made up of healthy food. That's why I'm very anti-diet and very pro-diet. Stop going on diets and just replace your diet currently with a healthier, nutrient-dense diet. Get rid of this crap in your cupboards and the crap in your pantry and the crap in your freezer and refrigerator and fill it up with good things because you're going to die. You could leave life right now. Is that really the last thing you want to eat? Really? Is that the last thing you want to watch or listen to? Is that the last thing you want to say to him or her before you walk out the door? If not, then don't. Go back. Tell her you love her. Tell them that you appreciate them. Tell them that you would rather spend three hours on the phone talking to them than having to stand at the graveside burying them. Say it to yourself. We're all going to die, and none of us know when. And we all walk around every day assuming it's not today. It's out there in the future somewhere, many, many years from now. But the observable fact is, babies die every day. Children die, elderly people die. People die for some of the dumbest, most absurd reasons humanly possible. Some people die a noble, heroic death. Others die in anonymity and squalor. We all die. No one's special. No one is beyond the reach of death. So why not live as if today is your last day? What would you do if you knew you had today? What would you say to that person sitting next to you? What would you eat if it were your last meal? What song would you sing on your way to the grave? So do it. If I knew I was going to die today, would I go to jujitsu? Of course I would, because jujitsu is life. For you, your mileage may vary. But who are you with and why? What are you eating and drinking and why? Where are you going and why? Time is the most precious commodity that we're given. And yet we treat it as if it is replaceable, as if we can buy more of it, as if we can barter for it, as if it's guaranteed. Our most precious resource is the thing that we squander the most. Time. I'm going to be 51 in less than a month. 
I don't know what happened in the last 20 years of my life. I was there for most of it. (laughs) But then when I look at myself in the mirror, one, I don't feel 50 or 51. I don't don't think that I I process like a 51-year-old. I don't think I behave like a 51-year-old. I don't think my body acts like a 51-year-old, but I'm still 51 regardless. And I can tell you then, as a 51-year-old man, with a four-year-old child going on five, if today were my last day, I'm okay with dying. I'm at peace with it. I was at peace with it five or six years ago. Because everything in my life is a gift. Even my pain, even my struggles, even my suffering is a gift. Because without those things, I couldn't be here with you, talking to you, hopefully providing you with some level of insight or knowledge or how I perceive the world that might helpful, be helpful and useful to you. I had to become a drug addict and an alcoholic to talk to you about addiction from both sides. I had to almost bury my son to talk to you about love and selflessness. I had to break just about everything in my body over the last seven years to say that jujitsu and Muay Thai are my life. And most important for me, I had to struggle with doubt and unbelief. I had to be an atheist. I had to beg God to give me faith after I became a Christian and settle my mind, settle my heart. Even today, I struggle with doubt. I struggle with disbelief. I struggle with the feeling of unworthiness, of imposter syndrome. As a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a martial arts instructor, as, as a man, I struggle with it all the time. But those are all things within myself that I have control over. And so to ground myself in the present, that's a big one for me. You could die right now, so why the hell are you worrying about who you were or who you're going to be? Live now. Enjoy the present, because it's all that God's given you, is the present moment. Death hangs around our neck every second of every day that goes by. Why are you complaining? Why are you wasting time? Why are you involving yourself in unimportant, destructive things? Things that don't make you happy. But they're family. So, you didn't choose your family. They made the choices. They are their own people, their own personalities. You have no control over that. If they interfere with your sobriety, you have to cut them off. If they interfere with your motivation, you have to cut them off. If they are destructive, if they are immoral, if they are ungodly, you have to cut them off. That doesn't mean that you never talk to them. It means, doesn't mean that you never do anything with them. It means that you build a fence around yourself because you recognize I'm not strong enough to walk with these people everywhere that they want me to go with them. And so I have to put a wall around myself to protect myself, to protect my wife and my children. I have to protect myself from them because I'm not strong enough. If you don't do that, they will devour you because they're selfish too, they're self-seeking too, they're self-centered. 
they're thinking first and foremost about themselves. And that means that they're not in your control and you're trying to control them and they're trying to control you and you're all writing scripts, trying to control the future. Don't. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're given right now. So live that way. Because it is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it, writes Seneca, in his meditation on the shortness of life. It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Next, want less. Number four, want less. It's one of the most important lessons from Stoicism. Learn to want less. Keep it simple. Success is fleeting. Fame, money, talent, time, possessions. It's, it just it falls through your fingers like sand. If you eliminate money and time, if you eliminate your pursuit of fame and talent or the acquiring of possessions, it's not going to make your problems go away. Because the things that you chase after are not the source of your unhappiness or your unrest. It's you and the motive and intent for why you had to pursue those things in the first place. As valuable as time is, and what I just said about time, you can worship it as a god. You can allow it to tie you in knots and basically imprison you and make you a slave. Because on the one hand, yes, you should live in such a way that you recognize, I could die today. So I want this to be my last meal. I want this to be my last conversation. I want the, this to be the last thing I do. But if you become a slave to that, where it's all you ever think about, to the point that you're afraid of time, you fear it, you're anxious, I'm wasting time, I'm wasting time, that then becomes destructive. Why? Because time is out of your control. Whether people recognize you as being worthy of their time and attention is out of your control. Whether or not you'll be satisfied with those things you possess, that's in your control. That's your perception. But we always want more. We're never satisfied. And that's what makes our lives more difficult. When we were first married, I was never satisfied with my wife because I was a serial monogamist before we got married. And therefore, the idea that I would spend the rest of my life with one person was ridiculous. It's absurd. And I grew to resent and, and loathe my wife, not because of who she is or was, but because of my perception of her and marriage and myself. One, I thought I was a treasure, a real gem that anybody would be glad to, to have for a husband. Two, that I wasn't thanking God that he gave me this amazing gift, this woman who loves me unconditionally and forgives all of my bullshit. But also the fact that we're married. So what at root motivated and drove her and myself to join each other hand in hand at the altar and say, I do? Because I wanted more. Because I thought I deserved more. I thought I was entitled to more. When the more that I needed was right in front of me the whole time. It was her the whole time. And it took a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of hardship and a lot of wrestling with each other a lot of falling down and tripping over each other before we figured it out. Was it worth it? Yes. Because if we hadn't have gone through that, our marriage wouldn't be what it is today. And I wouldn't be able to talk about it with you openly and honestly and soberly today. In my opinion, there's no shame 
in fail, failure so long as you learn from it. But if you don't learn from it, then you have nothing but regret. And that regret will destroy your relationships. It will destroy you as an individual. We need to free ourselves by simply wanting less and accepting that we need very little to be happy, very little to thrive. So as Epictetus writes, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. Marcus Aurelius was the Roman emperor. He had everything that a, a person could possibly imagine. He probably had people that would brush his teeth for him, wipe his butt for him, wait on him hand and foot 24-7. Anything he wanted from anywhere in the world, he could have it. And yet he writes in his diary constantly about how little he wants. It's not what we possess, but what we want that matters. In fact, the more that we want great possessions, the more we get possessed by our possessions. And the more we want and the less we're satisfied. Being happy has nothing to do with the things that you possess or that possess you. It's about having few wants. Because no matter what you get, no matter how much you want something, as soon as you get it, you're going to want more. And it's also just the fact that the reality of, of your life is that you're not going to get everything you, you, that you want. That's a very childish, juvenile way of seeing the world, that you are entitled to get everything you want. You're not. And yet we have an entire generation that apparently has been raised to believe that they are entitled to get everything they want. And now that reality smacked them upside the head, they can't stop screaming and crying and rioting about it. You attach your happiness to things that you don't have, the unhappier you're going to become. As Epictetus writes, it is impossible that happiness and yearning for what is not present should ever be united. You can't want more and be happy at the same time. You can only achieve happiness when you're satisfied with what you have. Which goes back to, keeping it simple, which goes back to accepting what you have no control over. Which goes back to thinking about death. And so ultimately then, all that being said, number five is simplify your life. Simplify your life. Keep it simple, stupid. Kiss. I apply it to preaching and teaching. I apply it to my life. Keep it simple. The more complicated and intricate my plans are, the more likely they're going to fail because the world gets a vote. There are so many things, so many people outside of my control that the more intricate and complicated my plan the more likely it is that something or someone is going to step in and make it go shooting off into the ether in a different direction than I intended. And now I'm standing there upset and angry with this person or with this thing because now I'm not going to get what I want. <clears throat> or I can simply recognize what is essential for my life and what is not. The federal government is not essential to my life. I hate to break it to you. I'm not a statist. Uh, it's not essential. Having a car, not essential to my life. Does it make my life easier? A hundred percent. Do I want to walk 40 miles to the gym? No, of course I don't. But that doesn't mean the car is essential. It doesn't mean going to my gym is essential. Could I train here? Yes. Do I have mats? Yes. Do I have the knowledge? Yes. Do I have the experience and the expertise? Yes. But I'm not a black belt. 
I'm not where I want to be. But I also accept that if I can't become a black belt, I need to be satisfied with being a purple belt. If I can't get 10 to 12 years of experience in before I'm forced to not go to the gym anymore, I have seven and that's enough. I need to focus on what's essential. And what is essential for me is my faith and my family. And then thirdly, my coaches and my teammates. Those are essential. And so everything around those three areas, I bring into service to me allowing or being allowed to get to those things. How do I serve God? How do I serve my family? How do I show up and work and serve my coaches and my teammates? So that everything in my life revolves around those three questions. So that I can say, is a car essential? No. But is it essential that I get to the gym on time? Yes. Therefore, the car is essential in that sense. But what kind of car I drive to the gym doesn't matter. That's not essential. How many wheels? Not essential. Motorcycle, three-wheeler, four-wheeler, whatever. Fly, helicopter, whatever. We have to be very sober and diligent, be very thoughtful of what is actually essential and what is just something that we want. So straightforwardness, writes Seneca. Straightforwardness and simplicity are in keeping with goodness. The things that are essential are acquired with little bother. It is the luxuries that call for toil and effort. Wow, that's fantastic. That's in letters from a Stoic. To be straightforward and simple, that's in line with what is good. And the things that are essential, you'll get them with very little effort whatsoever. But the luxuries, the things that you want but aren't necessary, you're going to get those with a lot of work and a lot of effort. It's excellent. That's so good. I've never read that before. So what's essential to a good life is that what we control, our character, that's essential to a good life is controlling our character. Our ability to create happiness comes from this. And notice what they say, to create happiness. We do not find happiness. We do not seek happiness. We do not discover it hiding under a rock or behind a person's face. We create happiness. And we create it by keeping things simple and straightforward. When we realize this, then all we truly need for happiness is ourself. As Marcus Aurelius writes in his meditations, very little is needed to make a happy life. It's all within yourself. These are the five, in my opinion, the five basic necessities, if one wants to be happy, that the Stoics teach us. These are the basic necessities to live a good life, a happy life, a virtuous life. And then anything that gets in the way of that needs to be cut out, it needs to be kept at arm's length. You need to build a fence around yourself so that you can differentiate between what is under your control and what is outside of your control. So first, clear away the material things. And then deal with your thoughts and actions. Create the space to confront yourself, to contend and fight with yourself, to bring your thoughts and your actions under control, to develop that good character. Because as Marcus Aurelius writes, since the vast majority of our words and actions are unnecessary, corralling them will create an abundance of leisure and tranquility. As a result, we should not forget at each moment to ask, is this one of the unnecessary things? 
And so we strive for virtue. We strive for a good character. We strive for happiness and the good life, which means then that we must be constantly mindful of whether our thoughts and our actions <clears throat> are doing something to move us forward and improve our lives or to lead us backwards and to diminish our lives. What's necessary moves you forward and makes you better and happier. Everything else that doesn't contribute to that is unnecessary. So whether it be our life, the things that we surround ourselves with, our thoughts and actions, we constantly question whether or not they are necessary. And if they are not, we cut them out. And if they are, we build upon them. And as was noted, it's easy to differentiate when you pay, get right down to it because what is essential is acquired with little effort. And the luxuries, the wants, the things we crave, they call for a lot of effort and a lot of work. So if you're working like crazy to keep your marriage together, <clears throat> something's gone terribly wrong. If you're fighting to keep your job and you're miserable, is it really essential that you keep that job? Is it necessary? Or can you find another job? And again, maybe you have to take a pay cut. Maybe you have to simplify and downsize. But which is more important to you? That the things that you possess possess you? Or that you take back possession of your thoughts and your actions and the things around you? I think what I am struck by most often is how people want to change. They want to escape the misery and the anxiety of their lives. But then when I present them with these five simple steps, they tell me it's too hard. Well, okay. <clears throat> it's, it takes no effort to sit on the couch and, and get fat. Just eat. It takes a lot of effort to be strong and fit, to be active but which is more important to you? That you squander your life sitting on the couch, shoving Doritos and cake and pop in your mouth, filling your eyes and your ears with garbage and poison, putting yourself in an early grave from type 2 diabetes and heart disease, living alone and isolated because you don't go out and you don't connect with people face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh. Yes, it is easier to lead a miserable life. I can speak from experience to that. And yes, it requires a lot of work to turn your life around. But once you do the work, back to the Stoics point, everything's easy. Because you eliminate the extravagances, you eliminate the luxurious things, you eliminate the wants, and at the very least, you keep them at arm's length. You keep them outside the fence line. So that what is essential stays inside the fence and you don't confuse the two and get them all mixed together and muddied up. So whether it's people or things, if you want to be happy, you've got to put in the work and you've got to clear away the clutter and you've got to simplify and keep things simple. And you've got to meditate on death every day and realize what a precious commodity time is and how precious a gift your life is and how we all of us every day squander our time and our attention, and our energy on things that are not necessary. But that's okay. Because again, these are ideals. And we strive toward the ideals in order to improve our life. That also means then that since they are ideals, we never actually achieve the perfect life. We will never be complete. Well, we, we will never be completely fulfilled in this life. And yet, 
That's not the purpose of why we do this. The purpose is to build a good life. And you can have a good life right now. Not complete, not perfect, but good. And that is also acceptance. That good does not mean perfect. Good means good character. Good means a good man or woman. Good means you've created a good life that you can be happy about. No matter what's happening. If the earth cracks and explodes today, if Jesus Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead today, are you ready? Are you satisfied? Are you happy? Well, I think these five story principles can help you get there. I think it can put you on the path and help you stay on the path. And when you're on the path, you're only focused on what you can control and not what you can't control. You're focused on what's going on in your head and in your heart and not what's going on around you. And ultimately, if you are a person of faith, you trust that no matter what happens, Jesus wins. That's what the resurrection is. That's what Easter is all about. Jesus wins. Read Psalm 2. Read what the preacher says about God and what God thinks of us and all of our plans and all of these movers and shakers and powers and authorities on earth. Go read Psalm 2. Read what God thinks about all of them. And just remember, in the end, you're not in control. And that's good. And that you can create your own happiness by accepting the things the way they are and not as you would have them be. So I hope this helped. And I thank you again for the question. It was extremely valuable and timely. And I hope that all of you benefit in some small way from what I have monologued about today. If you have a question for me, if there's a topic or something you'd like me to go back and address or something that you're like, hey man, you've never talked about this. Can you address this? I'd love to hear back from you. I'd love to get questions. I'd I'd love to know that you're out there listening to me. And uh, that being said, then I'll talk to you again Sunday, God willing, and the crick don't rise with uh, Sir Munition Sunday. Otherwise, I'll talk to you real soon, Space Monkeys. Peace.